I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. incentive problem in this country. The serious incentive problem. What is the incentive to change, to recognize people as autonomous, uh, having liberty, and not being ruled over by the political infrastructure that is in place and that continues to evolve and grow? What is the incentive to rein back executive power to pull troops out of wars overseas? What, what is, what is the incentive that the U S government has to respect individual liberty, individual sovereignty, and remain in check and not grow. And there's absolutely none. There's absolutely no incentive for a government to remain small, to not grow, to not oppress, to not seek out conquest or domination. And some people, more of uh, the leftist variety, like to talk about revolution and the incentives that a bloody revolution or a boogaloo would, would bring forward. And the potential of getting violent against the government and I don't think it is the correct method or way of of claiming liberty and of ridding ourselves of the tyrannical police state apparatus that is reigning supreme in this country the war state so to speak, but I understand the sentiment in many ways. I I get that. All right. So if you believe as I do that taxation is theft, then there is an argument to be made that everything that the government does to 
its citizenry is based upon violence because they have a monopoly on violence and they they utilize the p- potentiality of violence against you to get you to fall into line to obey their dictates and their legislation and to participate within the system so there's an aspect of self-defense that goes into any type of revolutionary thought but through evolution and the being able to observe history and what revolutions have produced in the past one may come to the conclusion that, hey, that is not the best way to go about it. Albert J. Nock in Our Enemy of the State pointed out that there has never been um, a revolution in American or in world history that all we've witnessed are coups. And this goes back to his his definition of what the state is. The state is an infrastructure, a governing body that is born of conquest and domination over other gov- uh, other over other bodies, over other people. So what he was pointing out was that when you have a bloody revolution, a violent revolution that takes place and overthrows a government it installs its own governing regime ruling with an iron fist through violence and so therefore you have you have eliminated conquest through conquest and as i understand the sentiment of wanting to use violence against the violent apparatus that is the state and especially seeing the things that they do around the world I understand that if Well, I understand that it's not going to lead to a freer society. It will just lead to a different governing society, right? A society that is governed differently. Um, Well, yeah, that, that, that adheres to a different governing structure, but is still ruled by violence. I guess is what I'm trying to say, how I'm trying to put it. So... I probably should have written this stuff down because I, I, I'm trying to tie all this together. So bear with me here. So when we look at what a violent revolution would mean, what it does is it incentivizes the U.S. government to increase their violence and the nature of their violence. Where if you look at like what Gandhi accomplished through peaceful means. Gandhi basically used peaceful protest and civil disobedience to undermine the the power and the legitimacy of the, uh, the British crown 
in order to give birth to um, an Indian government run by Indian people. And it's not that Gandhi minded rule, he minded foreign rule, which you can't, you can't blame Gandhi for that. Um, even in a libertarian circle, many of us would, like, let's say I live in Texas, I would, I would advocate a stronger Texas government if it meant a weaker federal government. Because it's a smaller scale, right? So there are less voices to compete with in the political arena. And therefore, your voice has more power, holds more weight. And the smaller, the less centralized, the, the unit of governing is the more power your voice has. So if you could break it all the way down to the community level or the city level or the township or the municipality. I always have trouble with municipality. I don't know why. If you could always break it down to this smallest level, the more power your voice has and therefore the more likely the governing body um, would be less oppressive because you'd be less likely to put up with uh, an oppressive local government than you are to put up with an oppressive federal government because the federal government has more guns, has more money, has more resources at their disposal to be able to oppress. So you would, you would have less power in that structure than you would at a local level, however far you would break that down. I think it was Hoppe that pointed out, if we can secede down to the state, why can't we secede down to the city, down to the municipality, down to the individual? That secession should not have a, a end point, that it should be able to, you should be able to secede all the way down to the individual. And so when you look at what your, you, what your actions are incentivizing not only from your side but for the other side as well because your actions are going to have consequences you know as my mom always told me your actions have consequences whether good bad or indifferent it doesn't matter something's going to happen for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction we understand this we know this right so what is going to happen if you, if you put forth a full-scale violent revolution or a boogaloo, as a lot of people have come to call it, is that you're going to, um, you're going to invite an even stronger violent reaction from the, the governing side, from the state. And whether that would be militarily or, um, you know, using contractors, using police forces, FBI, CIA, you know, the, the full weight of the Pentagon coming down upon you, using National Guard locally, as has been threatened in Virginia by the governor. Whatever that might be, you are inviting a large scale 
of violence upon yourself. What you have to find is a way to disincentivize the state, right? And so what Gandhi found is that if he used peaceful means, if the state came down violently upon a peaceful person, that it looked bad for the state and it delegitimized their power and their authority. Because then you had more people, more peaceful people seeing what was happening happening and standing up and say, no, 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 that's wrong. We don't want that. We don't want the state violently acting against nonviolent people. We don't want Ross Ulbricht to have, you know, two life sentences plus 40 years for starting a website. We don't want Michael Holmes to serve 200 years in prison, not serve, but be given the sentence of 200 years in prison for owning a substance. In his case, it was cocaine. We don't want that. And that these people aren't hurting anybody. We don't want somebody who's running an Airbnb to be imprisoned for not adhering to regulations. We don't want that. We don't want somebody who's running an Airbnb to be shot for not paying taxes. You see what I'm saying? Because they're, they're taking peaceful, nonviolent action against the state. They are operating in what is the gray market. And they are delegitimizing the power of the state through civil disobedience. Essentially nullifying state power. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, you have to look at the incentive structure as to what's around you. Now, if, if, if the gray market is only operating... In, you know, let's say on a small scale, let's say 100,000 people or 50,000 people are operating within the gray market, then you have a problem that the federal government can and will come down against those people. And unless somebody is backing up these people, watching these people, knowing what the government is doing to these people, knowing what the government is doing to the Amish man who made um, a damn ointment and got 60 years in prison, knowing what the federal government is doing to these peaceful people in the name of their health, wealth, and power. Because these people refuse to adhere to illegitimate laws, illegitimate restrictions, illegitimate licensing. To know that and to stand up against that power and the use of violence against peaceful people is the least we could do in this case. 
to try to disincentivize the state from oppressing free trade and free market laissez-faire voluntary solutions. If we to stand up against the the persecution of women that have decided to sell their body, to sell sex for money, that participate in a voluntary trade, a voluntary transaction with another adult, it's our duty to stand up for their right to control their body in that fashion. But if we extend the gray market and we start looking how millions of people are operating within this market, selling used furniture at garage sales, lemonade stands for children, my son selling candy bars, selling guns, gun owner to gun owner without involving the state, just two individuals voluntarily interacting with each other. And we begin to see that as a nullifying principle to state regulatory power. Then you can be able to expand the gray market into the white market and create less regulated, less legislated areas of the marketplace in which you have restaurants opening up, bars opening up, grocery stores opening up that do not pay for permission. You have small businesses, contractors that do not pay the government for permission. That they just operate within their communities on a small scale and they allow their communities and the market to determine whether or not they are offering a significant service or product. If you're growing cabbage and potatoes and you open a little vegetable stand on the side of the road, you are operating in the gray market. If you've ever purchased from one of these small stands on the side of the road, you are operating in the gray market. And this is undermine, this undermines the, the legitimacy of the state, of the regulatory state of the powers of the state, if you refuse to fill out your taxes in April, you are operating in a gray market. You are performing civil disobedience. You are a peaceful protester. If you form a militia locally to police your area, and you do not allow federal, state, or county officials into your community because you are policing 
your area yourselves, you are operating in a gray market. See, but what happens is, again, we look at the incentive structure. The state is incentivized to demonize these people. So you get militias being painted as white supremacists or Nazis. This has happened all my life. I've seen it all my life. The FBI comes out with a report on a militia that is formed and they're painted as racists. Never does the FBI look itself in the mirror and say, well, you know, what we did to Martin Luther King or Malcolm X was pretty fucking racist. Never does the IRS look itself in the eye and say, well, what we did to the fucking Tea Party was pretty discriminatory and pretty fucking bad. That's not, what, that's not the way this works. Because if the state does it, it is legitimized. But when the mafia told a small business owner they couldn't open a business without paying for permission, that was extortion. I guess if the mafia would have been federal instead of localized, it would have been legitimate. And the incentive structure goes deeper than that. The incentive problems go deeper. See, because people believe that politicians are incentivized to solve problems. But it's the exact opposite. Politicians are incentivized to get reelected. Politicians are incentivized to make sure that there are problems to be solved. In order to get reelected. Politicians are incentivized to increase their power and their wealth. Politicians are not incentivized to solve problems. This is a exactly why you see politicians put band-aids on bullet wounds they will tell you that in order to solve a climate crisis you have to pay more taxes but that tax money goes in to the pockets of the corrupt and is wasted on technologies that never come to fruition. Yet you can Google, and I'll do that right now. You can get on Google, and I, I'm going to do it as I'm saying it. And you can just type in inventors solving climate change and let me see 
We got a couple of ads here. We got a teenage inventor in 2017 who could change the way the world works. Ah, and what's this kid's name? Ethan Novak. I think I've spoken about him before. But nobody talks about him. Why? It's like, I think it was in the Greta is Right episode when I brought up Ethan Novak. But see, the politicians have no incentive to find real solutions and to glorify a teenage inventor like Ethan Novak because he makes them look useless. He reveals, he pulls back the curtain and shows we don't need them. They're pointless. And therefore, they have no incentive to solve the problems. They have all the incentive in the world to promise that they will solve the problem. And no incentive to actually solve the problem. When the FBI releases a statement saying that it's arrested three white supremacists, three neo-Nazis, affiliated with a group called The Base, <coughs> they have all the incentive in the world to lie as to who these people are and what The Base actually is, if The Base actually is. I have questions about that on the surface. When the base, why would a former Afghan veteran turn around, come home angry at Islam, as is reported, and start an organization that shares the name of the people he was fighting. Because Al-Qaeda translates into the base. And then he goes around as the group that he swore to combat in Afghanistan... Starts a white supremacist, white nationalist, neo-Nazi group in the United States. And they are announcing their intent to get violent in Virginia. How does that make sense? If, in fact, a neo-Nazi did start a militia... In the U.S. And I'm not saying there are none. I'm just saying the vast majority of those reported as neo-Nazi groups. I've yet to see any evidence to show that they are neo-Nazis. And why would they name the outfit after an Al-Qaeda, an Islamic terrorist group, 
that was actually created by the CIA in the 80s, unless they are a PSYOP, a limited hangout, a group meant to stir up emotions. What does the FBI have more incentive to do? To stop a neo-Nazi group from causing a rebellion or creating violence in the streets at a gun rights protest in order for them to have the power and authority to say, yeah, look, this is what guns rights activists actually believe. They're violent. They want to go out there and they want to start a revolution. They want to start a war. Or do they have more incentive to create the illusion of a neo-Nazi militia that is going from state to state threatening riots and violence? And then sucking in unsuspecting do-gooders, gun gun rights activists and shutting down the entire movement. I think obviously the FBI creating the narrative that there are neo-Nazis walking around in a militia with guns wanting to start a violent revolution does much more to further their authority and their power than anything else. Just like the Steele dossier and the FISA court or blackmail pictures of senators and presidents have been used for decades to further the authority and the power of the FBI. What makes you think that the way they operate behind closed doors with politicians is any different than the way they operate with the civilian population. What makes you think that they're honest on the streets and scumbags behind closed doors? What makes you think the CIA stopped testing drugs on unsuspecting citizens? Maybe they're not testing LSD anymore. But are they testing any other drug? I don't know. What makes you think that Operation Mockingbird ever stopped? What makes you think that Operation Northwoods never went into effect? See, because the incentive structure of these operations were plain, were clear. They were thinking of operational tactics, live operations, 
to use both on American soil and on foreign soil to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state. The NSA spies and collects the data on every American citizen for the health, wealth, and power of the state. The FBI frames mentally handicapped individuals in bomb plots in order to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state. The TSA exists to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state. The military is overseas fighting illegal wars to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state. There are 900 bases around the world to protect the health, wealth, and power of the state. See, the incentive structure is very simple. And the incentive structure shows me that universal health care, if it were able if the problems of corporate insurance companies, opposition to it, if and when they find a solution to the lobbying effort and to pacify and further enrich their corporatist friends, in the healthcare industry, there will be a universal healthcare, but not until it is clear that it increases the health, wealth, and power of the state. This is what the incentive structure tells us is happening. And yet, the citizens are still blind, blue-pilled, if you will, into believing that the two parties that have been incentivized only to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state for the last 160 years are the only options, the only solutions. And that absent these two parties, revolution, violent, bloody war amongst the American people that would still only increase the health, wealth, and power of the state is the only other option. I come to you on this podcast to tell you no, that there is a completely different option, a peaceful option for revolutionary thought and revolutionary action that completely delegitim- 
delegitimizes, nullifies, and starves the state of resources and power. That the action is an activism standing on the steps of the Washington Monument or the Capitol, that the action can be taken for yourself, by yourself, through community outreach and creating a community marketplace that does not adhere or observe the regulation, legislation, or dictates that only work to increase the health, wealth, and power of the state. That it is up to each individual to form these marketplaces and to work in their municipality, in their township, in their city, to create these underground markets out of the sight and reach of the state. To work around and outside of the health, wealth, power of the state. And only then, once, once you create this foundation, millions and millions of people operating outside of the parameters in the reach and the site and the scope of the state, do you create the weakening of the currency, of the state apparatus, and the strengthening of liberty? Now, those that get caught will be kidnapped, held at ransom at gunpoint, They'll be called all sorts of names, terrorists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, black separatists, you name it, un-American. But we only have to point back to our heritage and the rebellion that gave birth to the United States as a federation to show the example that no liberty is the ultimate American ideal and that regulations, legislations Perpetual war, fiat currency, and using violence against peaceful people are un-American. That the health, wealth, and power of the state is what is un-American. That bombing children is un-American. That giving welfare to corporations and foreign entities 
as well as American citizens is an American. That separating people from their liberty, from their rightful heritage, from their natural rights of life, liberty, and property is un-American. The starving of the state, the recognition of natural rights, of personal autonomy, personal sovereignty, is more American than apple pie. And it's the best thing since sliced bread while I'm throwing all these little cliches out there. But I just want y'all to think about that, that you have to look at the incentive structure. What is the incentive structure of the state and what is the incentive structure of the people? When the when the people are convinced that the health, wealth, and power of the state is best for the people, they believe that supporting anything the state does, no matter how evil or devastating, is in their best interest. And therefore, they feel incentivized to support policy, no matter how despicable. Or to steal a line from Hillary Clinton, no matter how deplorable. Yeah, Washington, D.C. is a basket of deplorables. Um, And so, it is key in, in... undermining the health, wealth, and power of the state in starving the state of resources to educate upcoming generations on how the state's incentives are counterintuitive to their incentives and how the state's incentives work directly in creating the income inequality, the oppression, the, the, the homeless population, how the state is the creator of these problems in order to continue the cycle of domination and conquest and that if you want to solve these problems you have to do so outside of the scope of the state and to undercut the legitimacy of the state because the state has no incentive to solve these problems no matter how much they try to tell you that their intent is to solve the problem The problem not only persists, but it worsens. And that's because 
the incentive is to increase power and not to increase well-being among the people. So, that was 44 minutes. I didn't even think it was going to take me that long. It didn't seem like that thought process was that developed in my head. But I think I did pretty well. Maybe somebody should hire me to do a speech somewhere. Nah, I'm just playing. I don't know if I'd like that. I don't like people looking at me. That's why I do a podcast and not a YouTube channel. So, I'm Tommy Salmons. Late. Late.